Science and technology are an increasingly large part of our lives. We take a look at the interface between science and history, economics, philosophy, ethics, religion, and culture. That's Spark Dialogue Podcast, where it all comes together. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Look around you right now. Chances are, somewhere in the room, that there's a clock nearby. Take a look at that second hand as it marches forward bit by bit. Time is a fundamental part of our everyday lives. We use it to judge what time we should head to an appointment, or even how long we should stay at a particular task. But what really is time? It has some very strange qualities when you think about it. For one, we can only move in one direction. We can go forward towards the future, but we can never go back to the past. Not only that, but time runs differently for different people. Some people say that time is a dimension. But if that's true, why is it so different from width, height, and length? Today, we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Talent. Jonathan is a philosopher of time, a professor of philosophy at the University of Nottingham. So prepare to go through a voyage in time. And by the end of the podcast, we'll even give you a secret about time travel. So welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. So philosophers have been thinking for a very long time about what the nature of time is. So what are some of the ideas of what time actually is? So there are too many to count uh, all of the different philosophical ideas that the people have come up with uh, over the centuries. But at least over, I guess, the last hundred years or so, things have started to solidify, uh, I think, into maybe three, perhaps four main models. Uh, the first of those models that I wanted to say something about uh, is called presentism. And when you were introducing the podcast there, you were asking people to, to look around them, to look at that clock on the wall, to interrogate their environment. Uh, and of course, they were doing all of those things in the present. And what the presentist believes is that's all there is to reality. So uh, time is such that only present objects exist. Uh, and that's, from some points of view, kind of appealing, right? So we, we look around, we see things in the present, we experience the present as in some way interesting or special to us. Uh, and so it sort of makes sense then to say, okay, only present objects exist. I'm going to be a presentist. So that's one of the models. Um, but in response to some other sort of intuitions or thoughts that we might have about time, uh, philosophers have cooked up other ideas too. Uh, and the other model that it's sort of natural to talk about having talked about presentism, uh, is the view that uh, often gets called the growing block view of time. Uh, and philosophers are terribly unimaginative when it comes to naming their theories. So the growing block view of time says that reality really is just a growing block. The present is right at that edge of the block. It's the, it's the, the, the boundary between all of the things that do exist in the past and the things that don't yet exist that are in the future. The present is just that boundary. Uh, and as time passes, well, what happens is that block steadily grows. Uh, and again, there's something kind of nice about that view in the sense that we do think typically that the past is somehow more real than the future, or at least a lot of people report thinking that kind of way. Uh, and this growing block model manages to preserve that because past things really do exist. They're just back there in the past. The future things don't exist. Uh, they aren't even out there in a the sense that we can reach for them. The third view that I'll uh, just quickly outline then is, is one that goes a little bit further than that growing block view. So growing block says past things exist, present things exist, but future things don't. 
the eternalist wants to say that all things, past, present and future, they all exist. They're all out there um, in a sense. And so reality is kind of like this big block, something called a block for you, unsurprisingly, because again, philosophers are terrible at coming up with imaginative naming conventions. Uh, so all these different things exist. Um, Mars outposts that are made in 3022, they're really out there. The dinosaurs uh, 65 million years ago, they're really out there. Present things that are going on now, you and I having this uh, chat, we exist too. All things are just equally real. And as I say, I think those are probably the three main views that, that philosophers have kind of fixed on uh, of late. So Google Calendar is an example of one of these, right? Mm, yeah. So there's a there's a nice way to sort of add a little bit to one of the, uh, the models I was talking about there. So that eternalist block view that says that all of reality exists, that that's sort of reminiscent, right, of a, of a fully completed timeline, if you like. So if you, uh, I don't know, I don't know if you, uh, in your schools, uh, but, but, but I had this growing up, right? Uh, in, in history classes, there would be these timelines around the room, all of the events that have happened just sort of encoded there on, on this line. And according to the Eternalist, reality is a little bit like that in the sense that all events are, are objects are just out there. But what some people want to do is to make a little bit more, something a bit more dynamic about that view. Because of course, if all events and objects are just out there, then it doesn't seem like there's any passing of time. It doesn't seem like there's any flux and flow that we normally associate with time. And so some people add a little bit to that and they say, well, okay, look, as well as that, there's somehow this spotlight of presentness. This is property of being now that moves along this block. Uh, and this is, again, because philosophers are terrible with naming conventions called the moving spotlight view of time. There's this present spotlight that moves along all of the real events. Um, and I'm always tempted to think of that as being a little bit like a, a kind of a Google calendar or something, right? So all of the events in your calendar are, are laid out there. Uh, and there's this little yellow light or colouring, the blue. I, I forget what colour it is in Google these days. I use too many different calendar softwares. Um, but there's that that presentness is, is denoted to you in some kind of way through it being coloured. And, and it moves through the day, it moves through the weeks. So, yeah, a, a, another model, the moving spotlight view that, that looks a lot like a kind of an electronic calendar we might use. Right. And so a lot of these models, so the presentism model and the growing block model and the moving spotlight model, of course, they have this idea of there's a special time called the present. Um, and so I'm curious, is there actually a special time that is the present? Because when, when you look at relativity, there's an example I can think of, whereas let's say you have two explosions going off and you're moving with regards to them. And because of the finite nature of light travel time, you know, light doesn't simultaneously reach your eyeball, it takes time to reach you, that you don't actually see these two simultaneous explosions as simultaneous. So can we really say that there is an actual present time? Yeah. And, and so here, philosophers will, will disagree with one another, uh, unsurprisingly. If we put two philosophers in a room, you normally get three opinions. So... <laughs> Uh, unsurprising to see disagreement on this. I, I think the majority view, the mainstream view, is that what relativity actually shows us is that these views, uh, presentist view, growing block view, moving spotlight view, face a real challenge from relativity. Because as you say, the best theories that we currently have, special and general theories of relativity, don't look to accommodate there being that, that absolutely special present. Um, 
On the other hand, some philosophers have said, well, look, maybe we can get around this problem um, by various different bits of footwork. But I, I think I think you're right to put a lot of pressure on that point and suggest that philosophers would have to do a lot of work if they were going to defend one of those models in light of our best physics. Right, right. Another weird quality of time in relationship to other dimensions like length, width, and height is that it actually has a direction. And so... Why is it that <laughs> this is a deep question, but it's kind of unfair that I'm asking you this, but why is it that we can only move forward into the present and we remember the past, but we don't remember the future? You know, we we're always moving forward into the future and we can't change direction. So why does time have a direction? Good. So so loads of great questions in there. Um I, I think the first one I just want to sort of pick up on uh, is that idea about why we remember the past and we don't remember the future because and i pick on that one because i think it's slightly easier to answer and i like easier questions um so really that i think probably just has to do with the way in which causation normally works uh so the reason that you don't remember things from the future and you do remember things from the past is just to do with the way that causation propagates so it looks like things in the past do affect us they imprint us in particular kinds of ways Things in the future don't. Causation looks like it takes us from past to present to future. Uh, And so we don't remember future things because we don't get the right kind of causal propagation going on. So there's the kind of the sneaky answer to the easy question. But of course, that is just going to push you to then say, well, look, why does that happen? Why does time have this kind of quality where things seem to go from, from the dim and distant past to the future? And I think it's really, really hard to know what the right thing to say is in response to that. So one one way to start thinking about this is to start putting pressure on this idea that time actually has something that we might want to call a direction. Okay, so one thing uh, that we might say about space is that it doesn't in and of itself uh, have a direction intrinsic to it. So we might label particular directions as up and down and left and right, forwards and backwards, but there's no uppiness, downiness, leftiness, rightiness built into space itself. Right. And I guess we could say the same sort of thing about time. Time doesn't itself have uh, a particular direction. Rather, what we have is things propagate in particular kinds of ways. They're distributed uh, through that block of reality in particular kinds of ways. Um that's not necessarily said that time itself has a direction, but that the contents of time behave in accordance with the laws of nature and the laws of nature seem to work like that. Is it just the reason why that we think that there is this present moment and we see the flow of time? Is it sort of like a human construct? Like we humans are in this particular place in space time and just because of our nature, this is how we sense it but it's not necessarily like this everywhere. Is that fair to say? So that, that, that might be right, yeah. So I think there are, there are two really interesting bits to, to pull apart there. The, the first is this idea that we experience reality as kind of having a, a present moment, and this other idea is then we experience uh, things sort of flowing in, in interesting kinds of ways. I'd be really surprised, right? and this is a... Maybe this is a question best asked of a, of a physicist or a psychologist, but I'd be really surprised if you couldn't set up, if you had sufficient kind of physical prowess and you could organise the universe to do your bidding in the right kinds of ways, uh, an environment in which we experience time just totally, totally differently. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if you create the right kinds of uh, physical environment for humans, their experiences will be radically different. That's pretty reasonable to say. So I'd have thought if you could change our local environment radically, we wouldn't experience the way the world the way that we actually do. The other thing to sort of say is to kind of question whether we really, or the extent to which we really do experience time uh, as flowing, which I think is one of the, the ideas that you were touching on there. Um, so here's something that, that philosophers have worried about, particularly, I think, in the last 40 or 50 years. So I experience, uh, let's say, picking up a coffee cup. I experience drinking the piping hot, lovely espresso that I've just made, and it's all marvellous. Uh, and I experience putting it back down again. So I experience lots of changes. Do I experience anything over and above that that we want to call the flow or the passage of time? I think the answer, as far as philosophers are concerned, is, is still a little bit open on that. But it's a little hard to see exactly what it would be that I'm experiencing that isn't just those changes. Uh, so we experience change all the time. Absolutely. No problem with that. Do we experience something else that's temporal flow or temporal passage? I think maybe not would be my, my, my tentative answer to an age-old question. Anyway, I guess there's this connection then between things happening, cause and effect, and time happening. It's sort of like the whole, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound or not? So if, if, <laughs> if nothing is happening, is there still time passing? <laughs> yeah. So if, if nothing happens, does time pass? Is, um, and that's a it's just a lovely question. I love questions like this. They're brilliant. Um, so there's a there's one fairly famous thought experiment in the philosophical literature that looks to try and say, uh, actually, yes, um, even if you had no change, uh, maybe you could still have time. Um, and the thought experiment takes a little bit of setting up. So, so just bear with me a little bit here. Um, in this far-flung really strange thought experiment. Uh, I need you to imagine uh, a complete universe that consists in three planets uh, and the inhabitants of those three planets. Um, We're going to call the planets A, B, and C, because again, philosophers naming things, just not imaginative. Very creative, yes. Oh yeah, we're we're just wonderful people for creativity. Brilliant. Um, And people on planet A are going about their business, doing their thing. And it turns out from the points of view of those who are on planets B and C that every three years, everything uh, on planet A just freezes, completely stock still for a period of one year. Right? So you can imagine there are kids playing catch on planet A and one of them's just thrown the ball to the other, but the ball just stops and hangs there for, for a year. Rain is falling, but just stops. The raindrops all just hover there above the, above the pavement. Um, this happens every three years in A. Inhabitants of A and C notice that the same thing seems to happen to B every four years. Uh, and inhabitants, uh, according to people on planets A and B, the same thing happens uh, to C every five years. Okay, so they, they muddle through, they get along. Oh, we have these freezes every year where there's no change on, on our planets. That's really weird. Uh, and yes, it is. That would indeed be very strange. But then they get to the 60th year and they go, right, OK, well, hang on to your hats, everyone. Um, just before the 60th year, wonder what's going to happen. And of course, what we predict would happen in that situation is you'd have a freeze in A, B and C. Um, 
that would be the, the way that this would generalize mathematically. And of course, they can't observe this because they are the only inhabitants of this entire of the universe. Planets A, B, and C in the rock, their inhabitants are make up this universe. But in that kind of scenario, it looks like we have reason to think that there we could have a period of a year where there's a freeze on all three planets. There's no change at all. And that looks to be the most natural way uh, of reading that that kind of uh, extrapolation from what's going on in that thought experiment. So according to the thought experiment, yeah, sure, you can have uh, time without change in these kind of weird scenarios. But there's something kind of weird and that I want to just address quickly about this. And of course, this is this is just an absurd thought experiment, right? Uh, when, when you teach this kind of thing to, to undergrads or you talk to people about it, they start poking holes in the physics left, right and center, right? So you say, but you, know, you, you can't just freeze a world for a year. And what, I mean, if light's getting reflected from A to B, because B can see what's going on in A, then not everything has frozen. And wouldn't the light heat the people? Because we know that's what happens when light's rising. You go, okay, look, What's the point of all of this stuff? Well, it's supposed to tell us something about our concepts rather than about what's actually going on in the world as we as we know it. Uh, if I can draw that as a distinction, because right? clearly us having concepts is something that goes on in, in the world. So our concept of time seems to be such that in that situation, we're inclined to say that although our concept of time uh, would apply, we wouldn't need to be seeing our concept of change apply in that situation in order to be persuaded that there could be uh, a period of time. So it doesn't necessarily tell us too much about the world, but it does tell us about our concepts. Uh, and to the extent that we think then that our concepts are in some way mapped onto the world, then we do get a little bit of a story about uh, what, how the world could be back. Maybe, maybe that's something we can say. Right. And so it seems like the only reason that people on this planet A know that this frozen year has even passed is because... There's somebody else out there with another watch measuring it. So it almost right. seems to me that in order for them to know that time is passing, you need somebody else's watch. You need two watches, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, so certainly to get the case going, you need the two watches. That's absolutely right. I think then the thought that was supposed to be that in that kind of 60th year case, you've used the watches and now you're using induction. Yeah. So we've seen these past cases. We've seen these things happen. Induction teaches us that what's going to happen is actually well, there's going to be a complete freeze that we just can't observe. Yeah, it really hurts your brain to think about. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to bring up another case that is, is it's not something that, you know, necessarily affects us on a day to day, but it's something that's very real. And that's a, if we look up at the space station going around the Earth, I mean, it's moving very, very fast. And this is actually a, a physical thing that people have measured. The clocks of the people on the space station actually run differently than clocks on Earth because they're moving yeah. so fast in relationship to us. So what does this mean? Like, what does this tell us about the nature of time? What does time dilation tell us about the nature of time? It tells us that it's really complicated and makes your brain hurt, I think, <laughs> is, a, uh, is a nice way to go with it. Um, so, of course, all of this stuff is is built into, uh, and it seems being a best surface through, perhaps I should say, thinking uh, about theories of relativity. Uh, and of course, what what comes out through thinking uh, about theories of relativity, I guess, are, are two really interesting and important things. The first is that uh, it looks like the way that we experience time, the way that, that time is literally is for us, 
uh, is a matter of perspective. It's a matter of being in a particular frame of reference. So if you're traveling very, very quickly with respect to me uh, or relative to me, then I will observe you to be moving very slowly, to be doing things much more slowly. Your clocks will appear to me to, to move more slowly and change more slowly. So there's the kind of the, the first thing that looks like it, it falls out, which is just weird, right? I mean, that, that just looks strange. Move something very fast and it starts to slow down. Very odd phenomenon. Um, the other thing, though, that um, I think is really neat here uh, is that it, it takes us in the direction of thinking about time uh, much more geometrically. So we've got these theories of, of special and general relativity, and what they seem to suggest uh, is something like an eternalist model of time where you've got the reality of that block. Um, but, but crucially, um, this is not a block with like three nice, clean spatial dimensions and then a single temporal one, but a four-dimensional structure uh, which we should call space-time rather than thinking of it in terms of space and time. Uh, and this four-dimensional block has all sorts of really interesting geometric properties. And it looks like those geometric properties then underpin an awful lot of what goes on around us. Um, I mean, that's just a, a really kind of fundamental insight. I mean, because for, for hundreds of years, people have been tempted to draw a connection between thinking about time and thinking about space. People have often compared the two, but but shifting to actually applying geometry to this four dimensional structure, and to not say and to saying this isn't just three spatial dimensions of one temporal; it's actually a kind of a, a very different four dimensional structure. We should think in terms of space time rather than space and time. That's a very radical departure from where we were. All of space and time was created in this moment, the Big Bang. And sometimes people talk about, well, what happened before the Big Bang? And there's some ideas of what actually got the Big Bang started, why it happened. But it's always been a little confusing because if time was created at the moment of the Big Bang, then how could you have a time before the Big Bang? Yeah, yeah the short answer to this question is is you can't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if, if space-time is created um, at the singularity or... Is a product of a singularity, then you you do not literally have anything before that moment um, that we can such that we can say, yeah, that that happened then, that happened before. These are the conditions that, using tense language, led to um, the Big Bang. That that kind of thing uh, is just something that we we can't meaningfully say. But I mean, one sort of thing to to keep in mind here is that we're running up against so the conceptual limits that we have as as being humans and, and also the linguistic limits that we have. I think if, if we want to try and express talk about the conditions necessary for the Big Bang, for instance, uh, it's really hard to do uh, in a language that has tense written through it like English does. Um, what we might need is a language like mathematics that doesn't look like it has any of those tense markers, those features of tense. Uh, and if we're happy to think of mathematics as a language and we're happy to think of mathematics as describing the fundamental laws of the universe, then yeah, you know, just use that language and then you'll be able to talk about the conditions necessary for generating a, a Big Bang. But, but notice that generating, of course, is implying some kind of temporal continuity. So ignore what I just said about generation and just focus on the conditions necessary for a, a singularity, something like that. Okay, that's, that's an interesting way to think about it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's this this problem is um, it's uh, very familiar from earlier kind of philosophical theological debates about uh, about God, right? So if if God created time, then well, you know, that seems to imply that God existed before time. But how can God exist before time if God created time? So what came before God? Um, all of these questions have been asked uh, many, many times before. It's not new to the physics, I guess, is my, my take home. Going back to how humans experience time and how we think of time, a lot of different societies throughout the history of human time <laughs> have thought of time in different ways. For example, in Hinduism and in Mayan and Native American calendars, they think of time as cyclic. Whereas you, if you look at Abrahamic religions, they have time is linear. It has a beginning and it has an end. And then some people like uh, in Greek and Buddhist thought, they think that time is just an illusion completely. Mm, um, yeah. And so how does this work with some of the philosophical models that are being seen right now? So this is, I love thinking about the ways in which different groups have, have kind of conceptualized time. Um, it always seems to be that there's some socially significant feature that, that drives the way that, that folks treat time. Uh, I mean, the, the Abrahamic faith one is a, is a really nice one um, to just briefly focus on, because if you've got this idea of redemption being brought into the world, then time can't be cyclical, right? Because there is a point at which... Uh, we are, we are saved, this is brought into the world and uh, you can't then circle back behind it and undo it all again. It just has to be there as an absolute feature. And I think that's why you get uh, linearity uh, coming out in those kinds of things. I mean, the way that the, the, the models try and accommodate these different sorts of insights um, varies a little bit. So if you're an eternalist, uh, you think that reality is just a block. I mean, include making sense of things like cyclical time is dead easy. Time just looks like a donut. Um, you just loop around the donut again and again and again and again and again. That's that's nice and easy for them. Uh, so rather than it just being like a four dimensional, I was going to say a four dimensional cube, but like a, a four dimensional structure, it's a it's a donutty four dimensional structure, which is just making me hungry now. <laughs> um, and uh, again, if you think time's linear, then you've just got that kind of ordinary. Uh, block kind of picture like a timeline um if you're a growing block theorist or a presentist where you think that time is in some sense sort of intrinsically dynamic things are genuinely changing um then it's a little harder to make sense of these spatial metaphors and uh, time being cyclical time being linear um what you would want to do is talk about uh, probably the contents of moments uh, repeating themselves. So if you wanted to make sense of um, kind of cyclical time on a presentist module, uh, model, what you'd probably say is uh, a particular set of events, A, B, C, D happened, and then A, B, C, D happened again, and then A, B, C, D happened again, and then and again, and again, and again. So rather than really appealing to that spatial structure, you just try and recapture the, the, kind of the eternal recurrence of these different sets of events. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, and there are, there are different ways of, of doing it depending on on how you want to go. Um, the idea of treating time as an illusion is altogether interesting and strange, and I'm always inclined to try and push a little bit and say, well, what exactly is it that's supposed to be uh, illusory here? So is it supposed to be that change is illusory? Um, 
I don't, I don't know if you're a Doctor Who fan at all. This is a, a British uh, science fiction program uh, involving someone who is a time traveller, messes about in time, and has all sorts of wacky adventures, as you can imagine. And at one point refers to time as being this kind of big ball of timey-wimey stuff, right? Well, why am I talking about timey-wimey stuff here? Well, w- one reason that you... I find talk about time being illusory difficult is, is almost this idea that there needs to be this kind of big ball of timey-wimey stuff, but that's an illusion. So this illusory timey-wimey stuff. And I always want to know exactly what the timey-wimey stuff is uh, that's supposed to be illusory, I suppose. Uh, and I think I've now said timey-wimey stuff enough to completely undermine <laughs> any credibility I may have had. So I'll, I'll stop talking about that now. Well, that's another model you can add. <laughs> the, the timey-wimey that's, stuff. That's a much more, more creative yeah. name than some of the others. Absolutely. No, you're right. There's space for me there. Yeah. So, so time travel then, is it consistent with any of the models besides the timey-wimey model? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it looks like um, it's consistent with our best physics that we can have uh, travel into the past. It looks like we should be able to have closed time-like curves such that you can travel uh, back through time and find yourself at an earlier event. The, the challenges seem to be a little bit more uh, philosophical in nature. Um, so there are all sorts of movies that, that have brought this out in, in various different ways. Uh, although I should say I hate watching time travel movies because it just feels like work. <laughs> um, and I you know, should be trying to unwind and relax. And I time travel movies. Like, no, I don't want to do this. Um, but I mean, a classical case, right? If you think about, if you think that time travel is possible, then it looks like it should be possible for me to travel back in time. Uh, and if I've trained sufficiently well uh, in the use of poisons or guns or whatever it is, I should be able to get enough skill to be able to reliably commit the act of killing my own grandparents. Okay, but of course, if I kill my own grandparents, then my grandparents can't have my parents. My parents can't have me, and I can't exist to go back in time to to try and kill my grandparents. So, from that point of view, there seems to be a sense in which I really can't. I mean, I can travel back in time, but there are various different things that I, I really can't do once I'm there. But that looks really weird because once I'm back there with all of those skills, it looks like I really should be able to do those sorts of things. So maybe time travel just isn't possible after all. Who knows? It's complicated. Well, at the beginning of this podcast, I promised a secret of time travel. And so now now we're at the end of this podcast. We're now all 30 minutes farther into the future than we were at the beginning. So there you go. Time travel. This is true. We, we've time traveled. That's a, that's a nice, easy case of time travel. Exactly. Yeah, it's a good one. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is Elizabeth Fernandez for Spark Dialogue Podcasts. This podcast wraps up our third season, and I want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners who have joined us. We've talked about everything from toothbrushes in orbit to the difference between ice cream and Nazis, to AI that writes music, to science that can help you live for hundreds of years. And a big thank you to all of my guests who have made this show possible. It's been a pleasure to talk to all of you. We're going to go on break for a few months to the end of the year. But if you'd like, you can follow us on Twitter at Spark Dialogue or on Facebook.com slash Spark Dialogue, where I'll still be posting science news. Or you can always check out SparkDialogue.com. You'll also then be the first to know when we're back for the fourth season. This is Elizabeth Fernandez, and as always, thanks for listening.